I'm here with Maya Solovitz, who's a neuroscience journalist and addiction expert, and she's author of like 100,000 books, including um, a co-authorship with Bruce Perry of The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, and her most recent, the New York Times bestselling book, Unbroken Brain, and Maya is the author of a forthcoming book that will be published in the summer called Undoing Drugs. Maya, thank you so, so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. How's everything been during the pandemic for you? Well, it's been kind of pandemic-y, but um, I feel like we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I am half-vaxxed and um, really ready to get out of the house a bit more. Has the, the current situation changed the kind of work that you're doing, the research that you're doing, or things that you're looking and thinking about? Um, well, obviously, I couldn't travel anymore, um, but that turned out to be convenient because I was pretty much through the research phase of my book and was mostly just at home writing or doing sort of follow-up interviews um, on the phone. Uh, but I had been traveling an awful lot um, before that, doing a lot of speaking and uh, reporting and, and just research on the book. So it was a little bit of a stunning transition from like being all over the place all the time to just being here. But, you know, it's good. Can I ask, even though I know, but it's um, for the audience sake, can I ask you to give a little bit of background about how you entered the addiction field? If you can even remember anymore, because you have been like <laughs> sure, qu- sure. quietly a superstar in this field for a long time. Oh, thanks. Well, um, so basically I had my own addiction problem in my teens and early twenties and I wound up um, injecting cocaine and heroin and that turned into a disaster. So I got into recovery um, and basically I, you know, before that, I was sort of a straight-A student. I had been at Columbia University. I kind of wondered, like, what the heck happened? Um, and so I sort of devoted my career since then to trying to understand, you know, what addiction is, how it can affect people, why we have such absolutely horrific negative stereotypes about addiction, racism, um, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, it just... Uh, uh, sort of spiraled from there because the thing about addiction is that you really can't understand it without sort of doing so across disciplines. So if you just look at the history or if you just look at the neuroscience or if you just look at the sociology, you're really missing a lot of stuff. So this provides a very good education across the sciences in kind of being able to understand various forms of research and statistics. And I do not claim to be an expert on statistics. But um, I can tell when somebody's confusing correlation and cause very often, which mm-hmm. a surprisingly large number of people try to do in this area, even though it's like sort of the error that even like a high schooler can pick out. Sure. But there you go. So anyway, so it, it um, you know, since then I've been uh, writing about it, reporting about it. Um, my work also kind of took me into trying to understand uh, trauma with I did a lot of work with uh, Bruce Perry, who's a leading child trauma expert. Um, and just really trying to get a sense of, you know, how the brain works and, and why it goes wrong in this particular way, um, when people have addiction. How are you defining addiction? I mean, I work with Peel, obviously, and so we're going to have broadly similar definitions, but I'm always curious to, to get someone. Sure. So, um, so basically I just see it as compulsive drug use that continues in the face of negative consequences. And I know you've Uh, talked about non-drug addictions too so i mean i know yes, that well exactly it when can you say behavior. addiction most people are thinking about drugs so that satisfies right. that so no it can be you talk a lot about be, or think a lot about uh non-drug sort of addictions yes because i feel like they really give you a good sense into the essence of the issue which is you know while specific drugs can have specific effects and need specific treatments particularly opioids because of the deadly state of the market and the um uh, real risk of overdose. Um, the fundamental bit of addiction, which is compulsive behavior in the face of negative consequences, mm. is the same whether you're talking about video games or whether you're talking about heroin. Obviously, when you kick video games, you are not going to be puking and shaking and having all that kind of withdrawal. But the focus relentlessly on physical dependence as being the same thing as addiction has caused tremendous harm. For example, um, in the 80s, 
Scientific American said, you know, cocaine's no more addictive than potato chips. Of course, we now know the potato chips are addictive, but <laughs> the, um, the thing was back then that was a laughable statement. And we now know, of course, post-crack that cocaine is one of the most addictive drugs around. Um, because if you're talking about compulsive behavior in the face of negative consequences, like you, and I had this experience personally, you can know very, very, very soundly that you're going to shoot Coke. It's going to make you anxious and paranoid. You're going to feel terrible. It's going to totally suck. It's going to make you want more and more and more. And you're going to do it anyway, even though you know all those things. And so, you know, it's like you, you want it, but you don't like it anymore. And mm. that dissociation doesn't really happen as strongly with opioids and alcohol, which is partially why opioid addiction and alcohol addiction tend to last many more years than stimulant addiction. And of course, some people who have stimulant addiction, when they just get so burnt out on it, just switch to a depressant addiction instead if they still haven't uh, resolved what is driving the problem. Um, but so, you know, this idea that like you need to puke and shake and, and that that is what keeps people from kicking, um, it's just ludicrous because if that were the case, you could cure addiction by locking people in the closet for two weeks till the physical withdrawal was over. Right. Um, now, anybody who's ever had a genuine opioid addiction has gone through withdrawal many, many times. You don't just do it once. If you have physical dependence and you have like, say you're in pain treatment, you have to take opioids every day. So you get physically dependent and then something cures your pain and you go through the withdrawal. It's really no big deal. It's like a flu. And sometimes you don't even know you're going through it. Um, uh, now, this can be a very different situation if the pain has not been cured. Um, but the, you know, this sort of relentless focus that physical stuff is more real than psychological stuff, the exact opposite is true in addiction. So it's in large part, the relationship that you form with the, the drug or the activity that, that m makes it an addiction. And so whether that's causing net destruction in your life or actually doing you a net good is yes. a major distinction. Well, and, and exactly like, I don't believe you can have a positive addiction. I think that's a right. I right. Think exactly. That, um, if if an activity is bringing you joy and connection and productivity and all the good stuff that you want, then that's not an addiction, even if you're <laughs> devoting your entire life to it. Right. If, on the other hand, it's making your life smaller and more constrained and you feel bad about it and you feel trapped and you just can't stop doing it, even though you don't really like it that much anymore. That's an addiction. The idea that if you have been addicted in the past that you could never use a drug again or that you, you know, have the vulnerability to become addicted to something else more so than somebody else. Tell me your thoughts on that. Just uh, at a basic level. So, I mean, it is certainly the case that some people do substitute one addiction for another. However, this is far from universal and the vast majority of people, it really has to do with your taste. So if like for me, I can um, drink alcohol socially because I don't really like it that much. It's like cool. And, you know, I like enjoy a little bit of buzz, but after, you know, maybe two drinks, I'm kind of like, mm, you know, um, which I never had that with heroin or cocaine. Mm. I never felt like, I mean, heroin, I would feel satiated in the sense that I was in my dreamy state where I wanted to be. Mm. Um, but it was never like I, if somebody had more, I wouldn't be happy to take it. Hmm. Um, cocaine, it doesn't bring you into that space because what cocaine does is more directly dopaminergic and it makes you desire and desire and desire and, you know, sort of infinite satiation is fine, but infinite desire really sucks if hmm. it's not satisfied. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I think, um, you know, it really depends on the person, some people, and it really depends on their psychological you know, psychological state and, and the kind of social support that they have and the cognitive stuff that they know about managing um, their self-regulation. There's just a lot of different factors, but it's definitely not the case that if you've ever had a problem with one drug, you will always have problems with all drugs. And if that were the case, basically people um, who had heroin addictions couldn't eat sugar probably. Right, that's um, true. That's a good point. Or caffeine. Um, uh, it's kind of amazing that people who smoke cigarettes are perfectly considered in recovery, <laughs> yeah. even though if you 
you know, were to like use another substance that is um, that deadly, um, that was illegal, um, you would be, you know, considered actively using and you are considered actively using if you, um, uh, you know, just smoke pot after having a big crack addiction or something like that, at least in the sort of current dominant abstinence model. Right. Uh, smoking cigarette, you know, tobacco is such a, it could be such a harmful habit. And it's, if you take survey data at face value or take it seriously at all, it's, it seems to be the toughest addiction to kick anyway. Yeah, I, that's funny. Yeah, people well, are perfectly in recovery if they're smoking. Yeah, I mean, it's, nicotine is a really, really interesting drug. And one of the reasons that it is so popular, similar to caffeine, is that it really doesn't impair you. In fact, mm-hmm. it, in certain circumstances, it may actually enhance performance. Sure. So these are the kind of drugs that we love to not consider drugs in America because anything that enhances performance in America has got to be good. On one level... You- the idea that, okay, I mean, it's just a complete farce to say that if you're addicted to one drug, okay, you can't ever do any drug again. That's like low level. But even the idea that if you were, like, say, addicted to heroin, that you could never possibly do heroin again without becoming addicted to it. What you're saying there is that depending on your underlying circumstances, your mindset, drug set setting, of course you one could. I was just talking to Carl Hart, who I know you had a hand in helping him complete yes. his first book at least. And we were talking, I was telling him that I don't do heroin now. So I can't be like the brave person like he is and coming out and saying, Oh, I do heroin and look at me, but I can say that I'm in a space in my life at the moment that I'm f- very familiar with what heroin does, even though I've been addicted to it in the past. And if it were legal and predictable and um, I could get it as readily as I could, you know, a bottle of liquor at the store, I can't see a reason why I wouldn't do it again, and I can't see a reason why I would become addicted to it again. Why is that so? Uh, well, I mean, I think, for like, for me personally, I wouldn't mess with it. No? If I needed to take opioids for pain, I would do that um, in a controlled way. Right. But never during my heroin career was I able to control it. Every single time I kicked, I was like, oh, yay, I'm free of it. I can just do it on weekends. And the weekends always blended into weeks. Um, so for me, it's not worth it to, um, you know, the rest of my life is so good. You're not interested in rolling the dice. Exactly. Um, you know, and, um, similarly, I have no interest in cocaine because, you know, when I last used it, it was just hell and I was just craving it all the time, even though I knew it was going to have like an anxiety promoting effect rather than like actually make me feel good you know so not interested there now I reserve the right when I'm like 99 to like you know take whatever I feel like and be as physically (laughs) dependent and compulsive as I feel like Um, but um, in the meanwhile when you know when things are good and when I have access to a variety of different pleasurable and meaningful activities I I don't feel um, like I would want to mess with that Um, and you know there's different people feel differently about this and and I wouldn't you know, but just for me, that's how I feel. So I wanted to, uh, I'm all over the map, I know right now, but I'm, I just was talking about Carl. So it reminded me to say this when he and I were talking. And then, of course, he had this chapter in his book and he wrote an article. He said, well, harm reduction has to go, by which he meant capital H harm reduction. That was kind of a bugaboo of yours, and I'd like to hear a little bit about that if you're comfortable talking about it. Sure, sure. So, I mean, basically, the harm reduction is a movement, mm-hmm. and arguing that we all have the right to pleasure from whatever substances, that's a great abstract philosophical principle, but it really doesn't get you anywhere with politicians. If, mm-hmm. if you have two sides, one saying, protect the children, and the other side saying, I want my pleasure, protect the children is always going to win. So given the world that we're living in now, harm reduction was able to move us away from seeing drugs as something that are always bad and that drug taking itself is bad to seeing drug related harm as the problem. Yeah. To me, that helped create a climate that moved us as far as we have moved away from prohibitionism, which at least at the moment, is mainly rhetorical. However, New York State legalized marijuana yesterday. Um, I think New Mexico did it today. Um, In the 90s, we could barely dream of anything like that. 
let alone having states actually decriminalizing possession. And how did we get there? We got there by harm reduction. So while I understand the point he's trying to make, which is that like we should focus on, on you know, not always be focused on drug-related harm, I feel like the reason we focus on drug-related harm is because that's a problem. Pleasure is not a problem. Just go have it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't care. If I'm the government, I shouldn't be caring about you having pleasure. I should be caring about you having pain. Um, and, you know, if you have pleasure, that should be your business totally. But if you're hurting yourself or someone else, that's when policy should be trying to make a difference. I think policy, trying to make policy, like, let's make everybody happy. I mean, you know, maybe when we get after like having no rape and stuff like that, um, but, um, you know, um, so, you know, so I, I mean, I, I understand the, his point, but I, I feel like as somebody who's just written a history of the movement, which has been a political movement of many, many, many thousands of people who worked really hard to move things along, um, I feel like, you know, picking on the phrase now is, is slightly um, problematic because it, I feel doesn't recognize the work of all those people to move us to where he can come out and say, I use heroin, which he, if he had tried it in the eighties and nineties, mm. Oh my God. So he's sort of making that statement on the shoulders of harm reduction. Yeah. I feel like that. And I know like some harm reductions are perfectly happy with him making that statement because they want to move the focus beyond always harm, harm, harm. Yeah. Um, I think that's fine. I just don't think that's politically useful. Yeah, I got you. So you, I, I know that about you. You're always sort of practical about where you're putting your energy. So philosophically speaking, um, I can imagine, I won't speak for you, um, but I can imagine you'd be great with legalization of drugs. Um, yeah. well, tell me if I'm wrong. Sure. No, 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 no. I mean, I think like the, to me, the the thing that we need to do certainly we cannot criminalize possession. That is ridiculous. And if you decriminalize possession, but keep dealing illegal, you're still giving this enormous profit to like cartels and, and, sure. um, you know, it's a real problem. Um, so how, on the other hand, we really don't want Philip Morris fentanyl, right? Um, imagine Philip Morris fentanyl, the best high you ever had, like advertising all over the place, particularly in poor communities. No, this is not what we want. We don't want another corporate industry preying on us. What we want is not gangsters nor corporations preying on us, not the government preying on us, but some kind of way of creating a middle ground between prohibition, which has lots of harms, and commercialization, which also has harms. So why is, oh, I'm sorry. And to me, um, you know, I think we probably under-regulate alcohol and tobacco. Mm. Um, You know, um, I think, but you always have to find the the sweet spot between where, um, you know, you're running up taxes very high and then you're creating a black market because people are going to it because the taxes are too high. Or if you are like making it legal only medically, and poor people don't have access to medical care, then you're still criminalizing their access. So there's all kinds of messy inequities um, and historical racist injustices that need to be dealt with to get us out of this mess. Um, And so, but what we need to be looking for is a scheme of drug regulation that allows for the minimal harm. And See, this is, again, why I keep the focus on harm reduction, because I feel like it's a great philosophy for making regulation, Mm. and it always forces you to think about things in context. So, like, let's say, um, you know, you have um, uh, a lot of, you know, sudden outbreak of tons of marijuana use, Um, and let's say, which is usually not possible, let's say you could cut that back. Now, if that got replaced with cocaine use, that would be really harmful. So you have to look at the, you have to look at the risks in context. You can't just say, I'm going to regulate this substance and I'm going to ignore, like, for example, what we just did with prescription opioids. We're going to cut the medical supply and we're going to ignore the fact that these people either have pain or addiction or both. We're just going to cut them off and we're just going to be like, okay, we solved the problem. Look, our numbers are down so much. We've cut the prescribing more than in half. Like, look at this great thing we did. Well, yeah, but people are dying more than ever. That's the harm. We want to focus on the harm 
and we want to focus on are pe is people's pain being treated appropriately, which it isn't at the moment. Um, and then, you know, so, so when you're regulating these things, you have to look at all the places that regulation can do harm, that black markets can do harm, that enforcement can do harm, that commercialization can do harm. It's really complicated. Um, and we really want it to be simple, just say no, or drugs are fabulous, you know, and it's not. It's like we have to balance the risks. And yeah, yeah. we're seeing this in COVID now, which is why harm reduction again has come up because, you know, nobody's going to be abstinent from socializing. Like that's not really humanly possible. If you look at the horror of solitary <laughs> confinement and how horrible um, people do psychologically in that right. state, um, it's just, you know, it's, it's inhumane and we shouldn't have any of it. Um, but, you know, we've been sort of pushed into a lot of um, social isolation because it's a pandemic and there really wasn't much else to be done, but people are not going to be able to tolerate that forever because, you know, physically humans need to touch each other. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we need to connect. Um, that is the fundamental way that human beings relieve stress. So we need to figure out, okay, what activities are the most risky and how do we protect ourselves during those activities rather than saying, nope, just don't go out ever. So Carl's sort of saying, like, if we could get rid of this drugs are bad narrative, at least to the extent that it's mythology, then wouldn't that be a nice, uh, nice way to make tackling these policies a little bit less rigorous? And, and you're saying maybe, but like, we can't hold our breath until we get there. Like when was well, that, that and I mean, see, that's like that's really kind of the genius of harm reduction. I feel like, right? You know, because it's, it's like it recognizes that we don't change overnight, right? You've got to meet us where we are, and sometimes where we are is that we're prohibitionists. <laughs> um, hmm. and so, not me personally, I might say, but um, <laughs> you know, you you really need to like you know um, do the realistic thing that can help change happen, and. And sometimes that's only going to be a small amount of change. And sometimes a small amount of change will open the door to an enormous amount of change. Um, so, you know, so I, I think that, um, you know, I, I totally get what he's saying. And I understand why people are like, can we just stop focusing on the negative stuff all the time? Um, and I applaud people who want to move into that space and, and start working on that space. But um, like I said, my personal and practical concern is for people who are hurting, um, not people who are like, okay, and want extra pleasure. Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, and so um, it, that's like, that just, you know, and I mean, again, that's just my preference, but I do think that as a society and politically, it's a lot more, it's a lot easier to get people on board for a harm reduction message than it is for a my right to do drugs message. And, you know, people really tried my right to do drugs in like the um, 80s and um, maybe even in the 90s, there was a lot of um, sort of civil rights, not civil rights, I would say um, uh, it was a rights-based approach, you know, about like, you know, well, um, it's unfair that you have the right to do alcohol, but you don't have the right to do opioids. And yes, it is unfair and it's wrong and it's racist and it's stupid. But when we're living in a climate of what about the children, arguing for your right to do something doesn't really change the game. Right. So I don't want to believe it. First of all, sorry if I just made it seem like I'm positioning you against Carl because I know how sympathetical you are in so many of your views. Um, yes. So just I'll just flag that. It's not that's not the case of no no i mean that's sense. funny because it's like i i i actually i'm i'm very curious to talk with him about that because um i'm i'm sure he would immediately recognize that that um you know that that my point also has merit um sure. i just it's just sort of a different way of looking at it yeah exactly that's uh, that's what i'm so curious about so i mean like you said the focus the, the beauty of harm reduction of course is you're meeting people where they are and or meeting policies or problems where they are and figuring out a way to get the best consequential outcome given what your ingredients are. And so you can just do that over time. You can sort of s scope out what are the worst problems right now and how can we minimize those? And that's just like a universal forever thing 
that you could do, and it tends to make progress. And so you mentioned like your focus isn't really on how do people who are doing okay who want to seek pleasure, like how do we make so that they're freer to do that, but the people who are really hurting, how can we get them on track? Do those overlap in some ways? I'm thinking about it as people who are hurting also are trying to seek pleasure, and they're the ones who are limited the most from accessing that. Yeah, I mean, I but I think that like what we worry about with those people or what we should worry about with those people is not um, how do we – I think it's it's more the question of escape. So you don't want to be promoting life circumstances that people want to escape, and you don't want to be promoting um, escaping coping mechanisms that are harmful. Mm. Um, you know, if most people who use drugs are not going to get in trouble, but the people who do have several characteristics that, um, that tend to be um, – you know, in virtually everybody who has addiction. So it would be, um, there's a lot of child trauma. There's outlying temperaments where people just don't fit in socially and also have sensory or other issues that make them feel different and make them seek a better way of coping with the world. Um, and if you have trauma in both of those, then, you know, your risk is super high, not 100% by any means, but a lot higher. Um, and then, you know, there's also people who just, you know, their life circumstances are terrible and, and they, you know, are looking for ways to, you know, feel good, feel better, feel okay. Um, you know, the whole American Puritanism kind of stands in the way of pleasure arguments. Mm. And if somebody wants to take that on, that is fabulous and they should go for it. Um, for me, because I had an addiction and because, um, people with addiction are especially oppressed. Um, I am going to continue to focus on how to get them out of under this horrible system. Some better circum life circumstances. Yeah, I see. Yeah, fair enough. So how do you think about MAT and its utility and its limitations in the realm of harm? Sure. So first of all, I don't call it MAT. The reason is that like, you know, we don't have Prozac assisted treatment for depression. Right, right. Um, you know, um, medication is treatment. Yeah, and what do you, what do you call it? Single out addiction for like, oh, well, your real treatment is like the counseling because, like, of course, your problem isn't really medical. Um, you know, that bothers me. So that's why I don't like that term. I also don't like that term oh, because it lumps in naltrexone along with methadone and buprenorphine. Uh-huh. Methadone and buprenorphine are both proven to cut the death rate by 50% or more, and naltrexone isn't, and it scoots in there as if it has the evidence, and in fact, it may harm people. So while I do know there are some people that benefit, I am very concerned about people um, coming off of it who um, actually may be at even higher risk than people coming off of methadone or bup, all of which are at very high risk. So Right, so there's two um, tracks. One is like a harm reduction track where you're, people are substituting a drug that's at least a good proxy for the drug they were using. But then there's another lumped into that category. If, you're, if we're calling it MAT, it's, like, it's almost like a drug war, anti-drug mentality of naltrexone and... Uh, well, right, and I mean, I think like, you know... I, if naltrexone doesn't make you completely pleasureless or anxious and it works for you and it, it, um, it relieves the um, craving for opioids, which some people do say that it does, mm-hmm. um, then they should have every right to go for it and, sure. and take it and whatever. It's just more, you know, the data is really super clear, like abstinence and naltrexone are not linked with reduced mortality from opioids. The only thing that we know that works is staying on methadone or buprenorphine or possibly heroin or Dilaudid, um, obviously from a pharmaceutical supply. Um, you know, the, the data on those latter two, there's a few trials, but there's not that much. Um, although with heroin, there is actually a lot. Um, but there's not a large enough sample to get mortality data for heroin. Anyway, um, the, the point is just that... Um, I have no problem with somebody staying on a medication for life that makes them feel better and allows them to function. I do have a problem with the very controlling ways that we um, 
provide access to these medications for people. Mm. Um, and I do have a problem with us stigmatizing people on maintenance as not being really in recovery um, because they misunderstand the distinction between addiction and dependence. Because yeah. if dependence and addiction are the same thing, then yes, you're just substituting one addiction for another. If, however, as I believe to be the case, and the National Institute on Drug Abuse agrees, as does the DSM, dependence and addiction are different things, um, then what happens when you are stabilized on a good dose of methadone or buprenorphine or Prozac or anything is that you have a physical need for this substance for your brain to be working right um, and for you to function and feel okay and to avoid withdrawal. Um, but you do not have addiction because you're not compulsively using it despite negative consequences. And a good way to tell the difference is, um, I forget to take my Prozac. I never forgot to take my heroin. Right. <laughs> uh, right. You know, yeah. I mean, it's like, and, and I've actually heard of people forgetting to take their buprenorphine. Um, so, you know, I think that, um, you know, this idea that um, in this climate filled with fentanyl where one slip is actually very genuinely likely to kill you if you no longer have a tolerance, um, you know, taking a position against medication, I just can't deal with it. Sure, sure. And now what do you, you said you don't call it MAT. What do you call it? Am I just oh, I just dark call ages? It, I, sometimes I call it maintenance, although sometimes people don't like that. But I find maintenance fine because they call my Prozac maintenance. So I'm good with that. You know, like I go to yeah. the drugstore and it's like, you know, you get it kind of a discount because you're getting three months at a time and it's maintenance. Mm. Um, you know, um, but um, and I'm not like robbing drugstores to get more, right. <laughs> you know, um, but um, in fact, I'm not like sitting around thinking, oh, this Prozac, it's so great. <laughs> um, but um, anyway, um, the you know, again, that's that's why that distinction matters. Um, but, yeah, I call it medication treatment or just medication or, you know, but I just don't like this idea that like oh, in order for you to be in recovery, like you must get counseling along with the medication. Right. Because we don't do that to people with diabetes who have to make every bit as many lifestyle changes as people with addiction. Sure. Um, and we don't, you know, we don't like arrest people for like possession of cupcakes, um, you know, because like that's such an effective way to deal with, um, you know, compulsive behaviors. <laughs> So, you know, um, I just feel like we need to just normalize this and, and just recognize that, okay, this is a medication you're taking. And, you know, it may be that some people who are taking, um, you know, buprenorphine or methadone long-term, what they're really doing is medicating their depression. Um, you know, it could be they're medicating some whatever, but I don't care as long as it works. And I don't want people to feel that their form of recovery is inferior because they still have physical dependence. Right. So like, uh, I'm going to make a statement. You tell me yes or no, but I'd see it, it could be as simple as like, I talked to John Marks uh, from Britain and he was talking to me about how when people came in and got their heroin from him in the eighties, then they would, you know, so many of them just started going back to work and started having a life with their families. Some stopped taking the heroin that he was providing and some whatever. And so I see the same thing with it, it. There was no real counseling there. So I see the same thing with uh, maintenance drugs. So it's like you can, it could be as easy as, well, now that things are sort of stable and uh, you're getting what you need, like now you can sort of lay the groundwork or sort of build up the infrastructure well, of your life I mean, because you're not. Yeah. What yeah. basically happens is if you're actively addicted, the compulsion takes all your mental energy. And especially if it's in an illegal market so that like all the time you're like, okay, you know, how do I get enough money? How do I get enough drugs? How do I make sure if this guy doesn't have it, I can get to this guy? Um, you know, what if this falls through? What if the police, yeah. what if this, you know, so like you're always like, it fills up your entire mental space. And so when you just get given it, then you have your whole day and right, you will exactly. get bored. You will get insanely bored if you don't do something else with that space. Right. So, yeah, you could go see your family. You could go back to work. You could go back to school. And, and that's really what happens. It's, it's, it's really about, um, you know, taking away 
the thing that makes the behavior especially compulsive. And and this is why I do think like non-drug addictions like gambling are especially interesting because that takes up that same kind of space. Um, and, you know, people use it deliberately to do that. And the reason that it becomes compulsive and addictive is because of the intermittent reinforcement. Right. Um, and so it's all about the pattern in which you are engaging in the behavior. When you replace that with a very boring, you get this, that's done, next day, same thing. When you replace that with a really boring pattern, um, you um, you don't have space for that compulsion. Now, you may, if you haven't, um, if you don't have other sources of pleasure and, and comfort, if you don't have them, you may substitute another compulsive behavior. Right. But you may just fall in love with somebody or realize that, hey, I actually am good at math. Maybe I want to, you know, go to graduate school or something. This would not be me. Um, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, whatever it happens to be, you know, maybe you want to like lift weights or, you know, go dancing or, um, you know, play in a band. Like all those things that, you know, give people pleasure become available again. If the, your life circumstances are such that you're bogged down by something or you're lacking resources or maybe skills or, you know, things that generate positive experiences, then just substituting the drug can just possibly leave you in a state that, okay, you do have, you do have the routine down. You do have the predictability down. You do have the safety down. So good. There's what, how could you knock that? Um, And then, but to move forward, you would need something else. And so what, what would you suggest to that end? Well, this is the thing, and this is why treatment is generally so bad. Yeah. Um, like, you can't prescribe, fall in love, find meaning and purpose. You I know, try to. Um, <laughs> we try to, exactly. And we say, look, you, can, you know, you can serve God through the 12 steps, and you can serve others, and, and this is a great source of meaning and purpose. And some people genuinely find that, um, but a lot of people don't. So because this is hugely, hugely individual – um, you know, the person needs to either through their family, through their networks, through their friends, um, through the internet, um, however they find it, um, you know, find something that they like, um, that, that gives them comfort and pleasure and purpose. And, you know, that can be difficult. Um, but, um, the basic thing is to just keep trying things and also to realize that since about half of people with addictions um, also have another mental illness, mm. if you don't get that treated, that, you know, not to mention trauma issues, if you don't deal with those things, you also may not be able to avoid engaging in some kind of compulsive behavior. So um, if you're depressed and you can't experience pleasure because you're so depressed then giving up the drugs isn't going to make it any better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you may need talk therapy for that. You may need medication. You may need a combination. Um, but you need to figure out uniquely what is wrong with, you know, what is going on with you so that, um, you know, um, because people don't become compulsive about a substance or behavior for no reason. Um, you know, the reason that, like, you know, I hear this story all the time. Oh, you know, I, I had to get surgery and I, you know, the doctor gave me like Oxycontin or something and it was the most amazing, amazing thing ever. And so I realized, oh my God, I better like not have access to that. Um, you know, I don't want to do that because like, I don't want to mess up my cat. I don't want to mess up my children. I don't want to mess up my husband. I don't want to lose my job. Like this is amazingly pleasurable, but this is, you know, whoa, I better like step back. And that's actually the more common response to intense drug euphoria. Um, It is not the go for it. Yes, this is the most amazing thing. I'm going to just do this forever. That happens if you don't have the cat and the husband and the, you know, job or whatever, or a dog, you know, or a fish or whatever it is. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, all of these things like, you know, relationships, pets, exercise, work, music, dance, art. Whatever it is for you, um, those are the things that are going to um, allow you to, um, you know, to make the changes and to continue to um, 
avoid relapsing into um, compulsive behaviors. You might imagine if you asked a room full of a thousand people, how many of them have taken a prescription painkiller or narcotic painkiller that a ton of them would raise their hands. And then if you asked, depending on the crowd, I guess you could have a sampling bias, but then if you asked uh, how many of you are addicted to opiates or painkillers now that very few of them would, let's say as a professional setting. And as you say, it's like, well, what do those people have? It seems to be like values or good lives or things that are more interesting than the pleasure that arises from taking a painkiller, things that usurp. uh, And then it's also important to note that like about a third to a half of people who take any particular opioid actually don't like it and find it nauseating and numbing. (laughs) Yeah, right. But you wrote an article that's like uh, most people outgrow addiction, whatever it is. So why don't we ever talk about this? And my, our book was called Outgrowing Addiction. So it's, it could look like that we were just like, oh, let's take this article and turn it into a book. But I, I promise. No, it's no, I know you know, we, stand forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. But we come to the obviously the same conclusions. And I think people mistake what I'm saying. It's like you say, it's very difficult to prescribe because it's a very individual level that you would need to to prescribe. Oh, well, you need purpose. Not everyone needs more purpose. Some people have purpose in their lives and don't have something else. So it's it's a very unique set of, you know, life modules that somebody would have to sort out. So that's sort of how our entire book goes. So uh, we get charged all the time, or at least I do, with saying, um, well, if you're just saying that most people grow out of their addiction, then you're saying you don't care about the people who don't grow out of it. And it's like, wh- how do you get that from that? Right. Well, I mean, basically, I think... The thing to know about the fact that most people outgrow addiction is that there are ways that they do that. So what can we learn from those people um, and to to tell the people who are having a little bit of a harder time? And, you know, obviously it's a lot easier to outgrow it if you suddenly get a fabulous job and you get married and you have this gorgeous little baby Um, uh, as opposed to you're unemployed and you're unemployable and you just got out of jail and um, you're homeless. <laughs> so it's going to be a lot easier for the the first person in those scenarios to to um you know to outgrow it than it is for the other person who has to survive on the street. Um so you have to realize this and this is not this does not mean that the people who outgrow it have better values or better anything. It just means that um the circumstances are different. Um, their chemistry may be different. Um, you know, it's like, I think we make a huge mistake when we assume that everybody's brain chemistry and reactions to things are the same. Like I might take an opioid and found it numbing and awful, and you might take it and find it like the best thing ever. Um, and that doesn't mean you're bad and I'm good. Um, it just means we have different genetics or different receptors that developed however they did. Um, so you know, for the people who um, are having a harder time outgrowing it, they may genuinely have more challenges, whether because of their temperament or trauma history or poverty or um, racism or, you know, whatever the obstacles people are facing. So you need to, um, you know, we need to empower people to make change, but that can have the flip side of saying, if you don't make change, it's your fault. And we need to recognize that that can be, um, you know, I think you and I may have gotten into this, gotten into it over this once on Facebook. Possibly. I may be wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, something, yeah, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. (laughs) No, no, but I mean, but you know, like, it's just more like, this is why I, I, when I hear the values arguments, I always have to qualify them because I know that especially for some people of addiction who have a high level of self-hatred, it'll be just like, oh, this is another thing saying I'm a bad person. You know, it's Um, very true. It's really true. You know, that's not what you mean, but that's certainly how it can be perceived. So I just try to like say, you know, hey, there are differences for whatever reasons there may be differences and we need to find what's going to work for you. And you may have more challenges than that guy. And that's why it's easier for him. Um, And that's not fair, but, you know, that's just the way it is, unfortunately. We have to work to try to reduce the inequities. Just to fill people in. I remember this now because I was creating these little memes and it was. Yes, yes, that's what it was. Suggestions for the way that I meant it, if you looked at it collectively, it's like, if only you could 
get yourself in a position where these things were priorities to you rather than say uh, survival, which is often the case, then it would be generally more beneficial to live out pro-social long acting values that have long benefits to them. I mean, you can value a trillion things. There's so many things that you value that are competing for your attention all the time. And what we're saying is that if you hone in on the ones that will give you the longest term and the most holistic benefits, then then that's going to be preferential. But not to say that if you don't have certain values or you, you have the wrong values that you're bad or that your addiction's your fault. And yeah, I remember. No, and I mean that's like that. I've gotten into that with Stanton too, because it's just like it it can come across as another whole set of moralizing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I know that's not how it's meant, but I mm-hmm. also know that that is definitely how it gets perceived sometimes. And I think like the way through that is just to say you might have the strongest values in the world, but if you have no way of enacting them materially, like right. you have no job and no education and you have a criminal record and you're homeless, like right. it's not going to matter. Like you have to get those fundamentals, fundamental problem sorted out yeah well just to close the loop on that i mean we do say those things that you just said and we say it in a billion different ways and i think that anything anyone says in isolation or out of context can sound bad or mean or moralizing but just to save face here all that i or stanton has ever said about values is that if you're a person who pursues a drug or a person or a relationship to an involvement to the extent that the rest of your life is in shambles and you want to improve your life, and I believe it's self-evident that you'll need to reprioritize those values. And those captions that I was creating that that you and I got into began with that and said, you know, if if you're unsure where to start, then you might think about some of these 12 or however many values that people who tend to live balanced lives also tend to prioritize. So I agree that anytime one talks about values, one risks being called a finger wagger, but taken all together, you and I are on the same wavelength. Yeah. And this becomes very complicated because all people want to have, you know, a sense of agency and a sense of control over their lives, but they can sometimes use that to beat themselves up and say like, well, I chose this. That's why I'm homeless. And like, no, I mean, maybe there's some cases of that, but I believe those are relatively rare. It's more like, you know, circumstances can really suck and we have to um, be able to address that unfairness and help people be able to have access to the things that will allow them to live their values. Because I believe with probably the exception of, you know, psychopaths and sociopaths who are basically the same thing, um, with the exception of such people, um, most people really want to connect to others, to be kind, to to have a world that's reasonably fair. Um, And, you know, they want to be in circumstances that can allow that. And they don't want to be like, I'm the one rich guy living on the top of a garbage heap and everybody else is at the bottom. I mean, sure, there are some crazy psychos that, um, (laughs) psychopaths that believe um, that and want to live like that. And I just don't understand that. But um, for the rest of us, you know, most human pleasure is in connecting and in understanding and in helping other people understand things. And if we can help people get to the place where they can have those strong social bonds that um, relieve stress and make us feel good and, you know, have the greatest joy, um, that's all good. Now, obviously it's a bit harder if you're like me and you're on the autism spectrum and it's like hard to connect. Mm. Um, But um, that doesn't make you bad. Do you have trouble? Is that something that you have difficulty with? Uh, well, like- I'm I'm pretty much okay now, but um, as a child, I struggled enormously, especially because I was like so often in a state of sensory overload. Yeah. Um, and so you know, I was just like, I don't know, I was just like really obsessed with ideas as a kid and and <laughs> things, and so it seemed like I was like really selfish and bossy and didn't like people. Yep. But it's more like I really, really, really wanted to have friends, but. They just weren't interested in the things I was interested in. Wow, you and I have a, a, that in common, like a, that whole thing in common. I still am always sensory <laughs> overloaded in a sensory way, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and and you know, like that, you know, it was when I I read an article in the New York Times about Asperger's syndrome. I was like, oh my god, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that is 
explains my entire life. Yeah, yeah. And why I'm sure that drugs were so uh, welcome, you know, illicit drugs like heroin or cocaine or Well, no, exactly. Like what I found really interesting about that is, you know, when I wrote the book um, Unbroken Brain, um, I kind of thought like, oh, well, like, it's just weird to be on the spectrum and be addicted. And like, you know, I'm probably kind of unusual. Um, but no, like, I have gotten contacted by many, many, many people on the spectrum that have had similar experiences right. um, post writing the book. So it's not that unusual. And actually, there's now research suggesting that um, for people um, with autism, um, in the um, normal or high IQ range, um, their risk of addiction is is much higher than normal. Now, for people um, with low IQ, it's hard to say because I think it's probably impossible for them to get the drugs. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> because like people think they're too weird to sell to them, or yeah. you know, whatever kind of reasons, or they're you know in a place where they just can't access them. Um, so it's it's very hard to know if they would actually be at higher risk or not, but you can see it in the um, in the rest of the population. Hmm. I would love to get into that. I guess we don't have time now, but there is something about I'm always thinking big picture on things. And to some extent, that's a boon. And to some extent, it's just like makes me a pain in the ass and normal function. <laughs> like like I work in a school system. And so when I'm trying to ask like systems questions it's just annoy, you know, it annoys people. And I'm always trying to balance that. I feel like that has been me with like sensory agitation plus huge ideas that annoy people or just like my <laughs> MO my whole life. So someday we'll have to talk more about that. Yeah, um, no, I mean, it's like, and you know, like it's really, I don't know, it is really interesting, but I, I, I continue to say this in my interviews and I will continue to say this. Somebody needs to research sensory issues and addiction. Yeah. Um, because, um, like, I, I, and I wrote about this in the book, like, there was, um, you know, I was on some family list um, uh, where family members were talking about their um, addicted loved ones, and they were talking about, you know, oh, they couldn't deal with the, like, you know, tag on their underwear, yeah. and I was like, wait a minute, am I in an autism parent group? <laughs> <laughs> Like, wait a minute, like, this is like really interesting. We've got to like learn about this because we could probably, you know, learn some more things that would be helpful. Wow. That is so close to home. That's amazing. Well, I don't know who would be a better candidate for writing the book. So hopefully you have uh, some energy left after this one. (laughs) Well, it's going to take a little while. And I think I'm probably going to work on, hopefully going to work on something with uh, Bruce Perry again um, next. But I want to do something about, um, sort of just development and, and how interesting it is, but I, I haven't really um, got it, um, you know, sort of conceptually nailed down yet. Um, sure. But yeah, like that harm reduction book, like I am very proud of it, but oh my God, was that a lot of work? Yeah. You're ready to, you're ready to take a breather. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Thank you so much, Maya. We did a romp through everything and um, I hope we left something to talk about. I'm sure that there are plenty in your pages of your, uh, your upcoming book. Do you think that yes, I definitely. that we left anything out that would be important to talk about? No, no, I think we did, I think we did we did well here. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. It was really fun talking to you. I'm glad we were able to open that up in sort of an organic way. And um Thanks. best of luck on everything and I'll be keeping in touch but especially nearer to the time that you're I guess it's late July that you'll be publishing that book and I'm really excited to read it. <laughs> 